was there any discussion that took place that you are privy to between uh, the um, beginning of January and the time that this first appeared in that Lebanese newspaper about whether the time had come to tell the intelligence committees? I was not privy to any conversation to that end, Counsel. Now, uh, you were involved in, a, in providing the bank account number to Elliot Abrams for the Brunei solicitation, right? I was. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the fact that the number was transposed was just an error that you never noticed. Had I noticed it, it wouldn't have been transposed. Now, well, again, counsel, I have not seen that card. Uh, I would point out that my secretary, and as I indicated yesterday, I believe, was not only given the gift of beauty by the good Lord, but she had brains. I think that the committee had the chance to see that. She made very few errors. And I don't know that she made the error on that card or someone else did. Or that that was precisely the card that was carried to give to the representatives of the Brunei government. I would not have given intentionally a wrong number to Mr. Abrams, you can be sure. Now, uh, did you ask Mr. Abrams not to tell the CIA about the bank account no, as I, recall, as I recall, he asked me not to tell the CIA. So that there was a request and an agreement that the CIA wouldn't be told about that? Yes. Did you understand that the money from Brunei had been solicited for humanitarian purposes pursuant to the uh, authorization of Congress? I'm not, I quite honestly don't think I focused on that. I knew that there was an authorization for the State Department to proceed and solicit the monies from other governments. And I honestly don't know that it was specifically for one purpose or not. I don't recall knowing at the time or focusing on the time that it was for one specific purpose or another. What I did assure Mr. Abrams is that those monies would indeed be set aside for whatever purposes he deemed appropriate. Did he tell you what purposes he deemed appropriate? We deemed that the pur I deemed that the purpose was to support the Nicaraguan democratic resistance. And that would have included, if they needed it, lethal support, not just Well, again, I, I was fully willing to live within whatever constraints he wished to impose upon that account. Did he impose any constraints? Well, we never got any money. Well, but you thought you were getting money when you gave him the number. True, and we looked for it assiduously until the day I was, uh, literally the day I was uh, leaving the NSC. Colonel, did he, did he, when he asked you for the account, say anything to you about the fact that this is supposed to be used for the purpose for which it was solicited, humanitarian aid? He, he may well have, Counsel, I'm, and, and I, I guess my problem is I, I think folks may be trying to make things appear more sinister than they already were, if they were indeed at all. And, and the point I'm trying to make is that if Mr. Abrams asked me to do that, I would have done it. And I'm not saying he did, and I'm not saying he didn't. Those monies were to be allocated for the purposes that the Department of State solicited them, them for. That was never an intention on my part to allocate them to some other purpose. Well, are you saying that, that those funds, as opposed to the other money in the Lake account, would be dispersed at the direction of Mr. Abrams? Precisely. Now, did you give instructions to uh, Mr. Hakim or Mr. General Secord that of the 10 million, 7 million was to be set aside and 3 million was to be available for other purposes? I do not recall those instructions, but it was not infrequent that we would hope to have some operating revenue, for example, to support airlift, which certainly some can argue was a lethal activity, and yet we funded airlift out of the $27 million in humanitarian assistance. And I do believe that I talked to Mr. Abrams about the need for additional aircraft, 
and supporting continued support for the airlift operations in Central America. Did the, did the airlift include the drops of lethal supplies behind enemy lines? The, it is my distinct recollection, Council, that we came to the committees to use a portion of the $27 million appropriated by the Congress under what came to be called the Nicaraguan Humanitarian Assistance Office for the purpose of one, communications equipment, number two, mixed loads. Mixed loads meant you took beans and band-aids and boots and bullets and we got authorization to do that from the Congress. Now, did you, uh, in connection with this money, do you have any recollection of giving instructions on allocation? Not specifically, no. And did you participate? I'm not saying that I didn't. Did you participate in the briefing of the congressional committees on this subject? On the Nicaraguan Humanitarian Assistance Office? Yes. I, yes, I believe I did. And when you briefed them, did you tell them, is this what you're saying, that you told them that some of the $27 million was going to be used to carry bullets? No. As I recall, and I may be recalling incorrectly, we came back to the Congress after the appropriations of the $27 million and sought and obtained permission to provide intelligence and communication support and to deliver mixed loads. I, I, I may be imagining that, and I've been accused of having fantasies, but I, that's a fairly distinct recollection on my part. Well, in fact, you know that the law was changed to permit intelligence information and military or, and, and advice. You recall that? Well, and subsequently it was changed to provide $100 million in yeah, but even before full that. assistance. That's correct, and that's what I'm referring to, Council. On the... Uh, the Brunei money, was there ever any discussion that some of that money was going to be used to repay the financiers of the first channel? Never. That was never it contemplated? It was never a contemplation in my mind. And, never and I never heard it mentioned to me, and, never, and I didn't mention it to anyone else. And never discussed? Never, sir. Now, were you involved in the decision to seek the second channel? Yes. And uh, you got approval on that from Admiral Poindexter? I did. And you were involved in the various negotiations with that channel? I'm not sure how many there were before I got involved, but the initial contact was made, I think, by General Secord in uh, a European country. He evaluated it, reported back. And if my recollection serves me right, we then had a meeting uh, here in the United States. And you understood that Mr. Hakim uh, was the person who helped locate that channel? Yes. And did Hakim tell you that a $2 million reserve had been set aside in order to make payoffs uh, for the uh, second channel? Was we we discussed last night, and I think even during the day yesterday, Mr. Akeem made it clear that there was a necessity to compensate those engaged in the activity. I did not press the issue. I know well the meaning of the term bakshish, and I know it is a long-established tradition in that part of the world. I did not, I do not recall discussing a specific amount, but I, it was very clear to me that that was part of the activity. Now, was Mr. Hakim presented to the Iranians as the president's personal interpreter? Not for the second channel. He was for the, for the first. For the first channel. That's correct. Were there some people in the second channel who were also present at meetings with the first channel? Well, I was. I'm no, I mean on the Iranian side. Uh, initially, I don't believe so, but then eventually, Ultimately, as we established contact with directly with government officials, yes. Uh, was General Secord presented 
as a, an official representative of the United States government or as a businessman? How was he presented to the second channel? I don't recall. I know that in the first channel, I may be mixing them up now, that one, he had an alias identity and I don't recall his specific title within that, but he did have an alias identity and we had, as you know, alias documentation. When you were present at the negotiations, who headed the American negotiating team? Are we talking first or second channel? Second. I guess I did. Now, did you uh, present to the um, second channel the so-called seven-point plan? I guess if that's what you're calling it, I, I suppose I wrote down seven or six or eight or whatever number of points on a piece of paper. I didn't refer to it at the time, I don't think as the seven-point plan. Can you look at Exhibit 308? Is that your writing on the... Uh, that is my writing. And it's headed United States Proposal? That's what it says. Now, is that a proposal that you presented to the second channel? I'm sure it was. I don't recall whether this was done at the meeting in Washington or the meeting in Europe, but I'm sure that that is one of many proposals, all of which I had tape recorded by the Central Intelligence Agency or by myself with Central Intelligence Agency equipment so that there would never, ever be any doubt as to what I was saying or obligating or committing to. Now, Colonel, before you made your proposals to them, did you get authority from anyone as to what you would, as you just said, commit to or present to them? In general terms, yes. And as you can see, one of them were all American hostages released right up at the top. Do you recall uh, having a discussion on this subject in Germany. Well, as I said, I thought maybe this is what I presented in either one of the meetings in the United States, in Germany, in Geneva, Paris, I think this any has of the been other places that we this met. This has been identified and was produced by uh, Mr. Uh, Hakim as being presented in Germany. Was there but a date on this? And I could check the travel schedule, but I... There wasn't. You may have well, a different I don't think that the location is all that important. Did you have any conversations with State Department representatives before you made the various proposals that you were making during these negotiations? No. Now, you've already uh, testified that in these negotiations, uh, it, was, um, it was necessary for you to make representations that weren't accurate. No, they're blatantly false among other things that you would describe as blatantly false were the statements that the uh, head of state of Iraq had to go, that the President of the United States regarded him in an unfavorable sure. way, including an expletive. Lots, those, lots of others, and, all on tape. And uh, did you discuss with your superiors, particular Mr. Um, Casey or Admiral Poindexter, uh, before um, you um, uh, went into the negotiations that you would be uh, saying to 
an official of the Iranian government that the United States supported the removal of the head of state of Iraq, that the United States would give some assistance on the Daiwa prisoners, etc. I did not discuss those specifics, no. Um, many of these are ideas that came up in the course of the earlier parts of the negotiation is seemingly important to those with whom I was dealing and we were trying to appear responsive. There was no effort whatsoever to deceive anybody in our government from that that I was reporting to. I had with me one of Director Casey's finest officers. I had with me CIA communications intelligence support. I had with me CIA personnel who were recording these meetings through surreptitious means. And I made no bones about the fact that these were available to my superiors. Well, if anybody had any doubt as to what I was saying, they could have stopped me, and they didn't. Colonel, I can say for the record that we do have uh, recordings, and they Thank do you. reflect uh, those statements. Now, I, uh, guess, I guess my, my, my only question then is, Counsel, if you have the tapes, and I think I am the one that pointed well, the out the existence of those tapes and we transcripts, I, I see no reason to, to have a memory quiz with a man who's been through five and a half years trying to recall a specific meeting in well, a certain I'm, place. This isn't a memory quiz. Uh, the, uh, you know, making a statement about the removal of a head of state, about uh, the United States committing to, to defend Iran, those are things you remember without looking at the tapes, right? Yeah, uh, let me just make one observation about the United States committing to defend Iran. That is not the way it was portrayed. The specific statement reinforced by me after General Secord said it dealt with the fact that we had built a U.S. Central Command for that specific purpose. And it wasn't something that was a deep, dark secret. The fact is that's why it exists. That's why the Congress spent literally billions of dollars building that command. It is in every defense journal and foreign affairs journal in the country. And it, and it was because of that that you felt comfortable in stating that the United States would defend Iran. The United States would contend that the Soviets should not occupy Iran. And the fact is, whether we had or had not gotten Iranian support, we were not about to relinquish control of Iran to the Soviet Union, and that is why the senators in the back row voted for a U.S. Central Command, and the United States Armed Forces organized one. That is no deep, dark secret, not even to the Iranians. Colonel, uh, before you made uh, those, those statements, you've already said you didn't talk to, to uh, Admiral uh, uh, Poindexter about it. Uh, about that specific point, nor these specific points in the midst of a negotiation that went on over several days, did you, no. Did you also talk about the fact that there were two million homeless people in Iran? Which also happens to be a fact. And did you talk about the fact that the United States would supply aid, like a Marshall Plan, for them? I talked about the fact that they ought to get beyond the issue of trading a few weapons for a few live bodies. And that what our initiative was all about was a reopening with Iran. And that the President of the United States shared those concerns. The fact that I exaggerated my connection with the President of the United States in order to further this initiative, I have already admitted to. The fact is, we in this country have always expressed concern for those kinds of matters. And the fact is, if we could have gotten beyond where we were and established a relationship with Iran, I am confident that we would be doing something for the millions of homeless in Iran and the hundreds of partial paraplegics and those who need prosthetic limbs on both sides of that war. Did you, did you say words to that effect that you just expressed with this yes, conviction? Yes, and they there? are on the tape. Now, Colonel, you have talked about the fact that you found yourself very much involved in the management of a covert operation. Did you now find yourself very much involved in a diplomatic assignment? My whole purpose, as is also on the tape, and is also in the memoranda that I sent forward to my superiors, my whole purpose 
was to find a way of establishing contact so that a senior U.S. official, and the names of those officials are in the memoranda that I sent to my superiors, could eventually have a meeting with senior Iranian officials, that it would be feasible politically for both sides to be able to do that. And the names of those officials are in the memoranda that I sent forward. The suggestion that the Vice President or the Secretary of State meet with senior Iranians for the purposes of ending that horrible conflict, which happens to be the largest war on the planet Earth right now, would be to the best interests of our country and both of theirs. Did you have any uh, discussion with Admiral Poindexter as to whether the State Department should be consulted about whether this was the way to achieve the objective that you talked about? I don't recall that specific discussion, but I think you'll find those general ideas in the terms of reference that were approved for the dialogue in Tehran. And I believe, although I may be incorrect, that those were approved by the State Department. Is it a fact that the Secretary of State was not told that a mission was going to be going to Tehran? I have no idea. Did, do you recall, and you can look at Exhibit 193, um, that, that the question, it's, it's, well, I have them all in two books. I don't know how they were broken up in the exhibits you had given him, but it's, it's 193. Do you recall a that you suggested before the Tehran mission to Admiral Poindexter that there be a meeting with Secretary Schultz and Secretary Weinberger and that he rejected that? I recall suggesting those kinds of things on uh, occasion. I do you this is that do particular suggestion, that's fine. Do you recall your suggestions being rejected? On occasion? Is it a fact that they were cut out? I don't know. It was not my responsibility to walk up to secretaries of state and defense and apprise them of things. It was my responsibility to carry out the lawful orders of my superiors. And as I have indicated for the last three and a half days, I tried to do so, sir. And uh, did there come a time when Albert Hakim told you that he had negotiated a nine-point plan? Again, I don't recall it being referred to specifically that way, but uh, I've heard it since. Did he communicate to you points, whether he called them nine points or something else, that he had gotten agreement from the uh, Iranians on? I believe he may have. Did you then seek approval from your superior on those nine points? If it was something that I judged ought to proceed and it did proceed, I obviously th sought that kind of approval. If you would look at Exhibit 310, which is the uh, translation that we have of the document that he provided to us and that he said he had cleared with you and that you had cleared with Admiral Poindexter. See if you recognize it. Starts out with the Library of Congress. They're the ones who did the uh, translation for us. Obviously, if, if I had a copy of this, I, I would have gotten it from him in English, since I don't read Farsi, well, or Mr. Don't... Cave would have done the translation. But I, I'm not unfamiliar with this general proposal. Well, do you know whether you shredded the one you got from him? I may have. And you're not unfamiliar with this?
Did you look at these points? It, it, those points look familiar, yes. Did you communicate to him approval of these points? Well, I, if we proceeded in this direction, and I would guess maybe we did, then I did seek approval, yes. And did you include in the approval that you sought the item about his presenting a plan for the uh, release of the uh, the Daiwa? Yes. And at the time, and did you get that approval? Yes. And at the time that you got that approval, did the NSC have an official position against the United States asking for that? That plan did not involve the United States asking for that. The plan that we presented to the Iranians, which we probably ought to take up in uh, executive session if you want the details, did not involve the United States. And that's an important thing to understand. I knew well what our position was on the Dawa. I had written it with the concurrence of the Department of State. And of course, that was always one of the demands of the Hezbollah that hold the Americans hostage. Because one or two or maybe even three of the members of the Dawa are related to family members of the Hezbollah. Colonel, I don't want to get into matters that ought to be on executive session, but well, I have I, this question to let, you. Let us leave it at this, that it did not involve in any way the sacrifice of our position or the compromise of our position on the Dawah. Did, it do was you, a straightforward proposal to the Iranians as to how they could solve the problem. Do you, you draw a distinction between Hakim and the United States government. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Do you think that the Iranians who are dealing with him drew that distinction? I don't know. Ask me to put myself in the minds of the Iranians. Well, you were there when he was being presented, when he was presented originally as the president's as again, I don't, I don't recall that I presented him that way at the second channel. I'm, I'm not too sure what role he was playing in that case, but I did present him that way in the first meetings. I did so in the presence of two CIA officers, one of them relatively senior. I did so with the concurrence of the Director of Central Intelligence and the National Security Advisor. And the reason for that is the Central Intelligence Agency could not or would not provide a translator for that session. Which I is, think we've gone over that. What one. you're saying is that these were not decisions of Lieutenant Colonel North. They were decisions that were fully authorized. That's correct. I wasn't questioning the fact that you had authority from Mr. Poindexter or Casey or that you had made uh, tape recordings of it. We have the tape recordings. I understand, Counsel. I just didn't want anybody to be left the misapprehension. After all of the paper that you now have gone nearly blind on, and I wore my fingers to the bone typing, or my secretary did, or typed myself on my profs, that I left anybody uninformed who needed to be informed in the conduct of these operations. And you, when you talked about needed to be informed, your universe was the NSC, not the State Department. My universe was the National Security Council, the President's personal staff. And it was up to the President or the National Security Advisor to determine whether negotiations with Iran should involve the State Department or whether you should be the one left to handle them. That's correct. And they charged you with that. I carried it out to the very best of my abilities, Counsel. Okay. Now, you said, and I'm coming to the, the end now, um, you said uh, uh, on uh, uh, yesterday's session and, and before uh, when you were talking about the reasons why it was important not to disclose to Congress, the support that was being given for the Contras by the NSC, that you and others were put in the position of balancing lives for lies. Remember that? I remember that. 
I'd like to just pursue that with you for a moment. Uh, is it a, a, um, a fact that um, before the Boland period, their Congress had publicly appropriated money for the CIA to support the Contras? Even under some of the Boland proscriptions, right. yes. And it is a fact that even during the Boland period, the President had publicly proclaimed his support for the Contras. That is correct. And it is a fact that the President had publicly said that he was going to seek more money from Congress when they cut it out. My recollection, he said he would go back again and again and again, and he did so. And it is a fact that Congress publicly appropriated the $27 million for humanitarian aid for the Contras. And then gave us several waivers on the application of that. And then Congress publicly uh, authorized the exchange of intelligence information to assist the Contras, right? Correct. And Congress then, for fiscal 1987, publicly appropriated $100 million for the Contras for both lethal and non-lethal support. Thank God. And it's a fact that even during the Boland period, you wanted all of the Central American countries to know that notwithstanding Boland, that the United States was not abandoning the Contras and that the President would go back again and again to get money for them, right? Correct. And you also wanted to make sure that the Sandinistas knew that the Contras weren't through, right? On one occasion, I told them myself. And so, can you then just explain how you thought lives would have been endangered? And when I say you, I'm talking not just about you, but Mr. McFarlane, if you know, who wrote the letters, and uh, Admiral Poindexter, how you thought lives would be endangered when Congress said, are you giving support to the Contras by saying, we sure are notwithstanding Boland? quite simply that the exposure of the operation would have caused it to be terminated. And it would have caused it to be terminated by Congress? By the very exposure of it, by the very fact that the Sandinistas would then know, for example, the origin of the supplies, the schedules of the flights, well, the place where things were landing, and put such enormous, enormous pressure Colonel, on, the on the local governments that they were unable to support it. Colonel, you've missed it. No, I have point. not missed it at all. I'm talking about the political debate that would have occurred here in this country and the revelations piece by piece by piece, just like we have on this activity. So that it was the political debate and the possibility that if our covert policy became known, that it might be I'm sorry. So it was the risk of political debate and the possibility that if it became known that we had continued support of the Contras, that it would be blocked no. No. that caused this? No. That, you're misunderstanding what I said. What I was saying was that the revelations of the, of the actual details of this activity, some of which thankfully have still not been exposed, would have cost the lives of those with whom I was working, would have jeopardized the governments which had assisted us, would have jeopardized the lives of the Americans who in some cases were flying flights over Nicaragua, would have put at great risk those inside Nicaragua and in Eastern Europe and in Europe and other places where people were working hard to keep them alive. And some of those details have still not been exposed. And yet, because of things like these hearings, there will be governments who will be less willing to assist our country in the conduct of operations, even with findings and congressional approval and the rest of it. Colonel, and that's what I'm talking about, Counsel. Colonel, you said that the disclosure of details could uh, cause uh, people to be less willing to support or could even cause risks. Would the disclosure that 
we were supporting the Contras and that we were not abiding by the letter and spirit of Bolin have done that? No, I don't believe so, Counsel. It was not an issue of whether or not we were abiding by the spirit and the letter of Boland. We did that. We lived within the constraints of Boland, which limited the use of appropriated funds. What we were concerned about, and we talked about some of this last night, the very fact that when there was a briefing held and lives were indeed placed at risk because people weren't quiet about it. And we talked about a couple of incidents last night, one of which I was very closely associated with. And the fact is, I have said consistently through my appearance here before these committees that there must be a better way. It is not easy for honorable men with whom I served or myself to sit in the White House or anywhere else in Washington and to have to weigh the differences between lives and lies. These were men who had high purposes. These are men with whom I worked on a daily basis who suffered great anxiety and internal discontent over what they were forced to do. The fact is there must be a better way. And I have, I have suggested one of those better ways. I suggested an earlier way, and that was to divulge nothing. I make no excuses for those letters or my presentation before Who? Chairman Hamilton's committee assembled in the sit room. Who? I have told you why I did it. I'm not asking you that. Who forced them? I think the relationship that exists between the executive and the Congress on these issues has given us the consequence of what happened in these events. So that it is Congress's fault, in your view, that you had to send letters that misrepresented what the NSC was doing on Bowen? I make no debate with the chairman, with Chairman Inouye's comment that there are many, many leaks from the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue. But I would point out to you, sir, that for over two years, this operation was indeed covert. It did not become a matter of public exposure and damage to this country until the very end. And I would say to you, sir, that if a way could be found to work with the Congress the way I worked with the people who I had to work with, then we can indeed solve that problem. Colonel, wasn't the problem that the Congress had decided that it did not want the Contras supported, and so you couldn't work with the Congress? Counsel, if the Congress had decided that nobody in the United States of America should render any support whatsoever to the Nicaraguan democratic resistance, then it should have passed a law saying that. The law that was passed, a part of an appropriations bill, didn't prohibit what we did. And is it Congress's fault because of the way it worded the law that the letter said we are abiding by the letter and spirit of Bowen, yes or no? I have told you that that was not correct, and I have told you what is I it, propose to do. Is it Congress's fault? I say it is the fault of the Congress for not being able to understand what the problem was, and indeed the fault of those of us who prepared those letters for sending them away that we did. Is and it, I have accepted my responsibility it, for my role in that, sir. Is it Congress's fault for the various representations that were made to the Attorney General that were wrong? I'm not, I'm not at this point sure what you're referring to. The ones on the hawk and so forth. Is that Congress's I fault? I think we've already been over that. I just want to know whether you are, your view as you sit here is that it was Congress's fault. I have no further questions, Mr. Chairman. It needs consultation with counsel to answer whether it's Congress's fault to represent things that are counsel, wrong to the Attorney General. Counsel, I have no let, me, let me answer the question, if I may, Mr. Chairman. Please do. My answer to the question is quite simple, and I've answered it before. I think there's fault to go on both sides. I've said that repeatedly throughout my testimony, and I have accepted the responsibility for my role in it.
will stand in recess for 10 minutes. The hearing will please come to order. The chair recognizes Chairman Hamilton. Uh, I recognize uh, Mr. Jenkins to begin one hour of uh, questioning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Colonel North, I know you have uh, been here for a long, long time, and and I will try to uh, keep my questions very, very short. Uh, maybe I will not use the entire time. Let me say in the beginning that uh, with an issue like this, I'm sure there will be many repetitive questions, and I want to apologize in advance because I know you will have answered some of them, but I want to get the picture in my mind uh, so that I fully understand as best I can uh, from your testimony as to what actually occurred. Uh, before I ask you a question, as one Democrat, as you probably know, I have always supported Contra aid. Yes, sir, and I'm sure that they are grateful for that. Uh, I am. I wanted to, uh, as I know that you are already knew that, uh, uh, nevertheless, there are many areas in this entire episode that greatly disturbed me. I understand that, sir. And uh, I'm going to uh, pick right up where uh, on the same subject matter, really, uh, that you've answered many, many questions because I want to know in my own mind what really occurred. In the enterprise that Secord, uh, I believe, calls it an enterprise, I want to go back for you to explain once again how Secord and Hakeem were first brought into the picture. My recollection, uh, Congressman Jenkins, is that in the early days of 1984, when we saw the money running out, we had a number of discussions within the administration as to what the alternatives were. And 
my recollection is that the first person to suggest uh, General Secord was Director Casey as a person who could, uh, acting outside of the government of the United States, uh, provide uh, assistance, relying on his abilities that he had demonstrated while on active duty, uh, his experience with covert operations, and his connections uh, throughout the world, having come from a Pentagon job where he had that kind of a background where he had contacts with senior officials and other governments. We all knew that the Nicaraguan resistance could not survive without the support of others. And in fact, if I may just digress for a moment, that is a very important part of all this, is that the Nicaraguan democratic resistance could not support if it only had our support just the support of the United States. If we were the only ones backing them, they would not survive. Such was the case with the Sandinistas when they came to power. It took more than just the support of the Soviet Union, the Cubans, to help the Sandinistas seize power in 1979. Thus, the initiation was that the NSC first of all, would pick up responsibilities increasingly as the CIA was basically phased out. It, it wasn't quite as abrupt now as the final you? cutoff in October of 1984, I believe it was. Who gave you at that point, uh, or gave the NSC, the di direction to contact uh, General Secord? Did that come from Casey or did that come from someone else? The person who suggested General Secord to me, and I then took the name to Mr. McFarlane, uh, was Director Casey. And did you at that time already know General Secord? I had met General Secord in 1981, shortly after I arrived on the NSC staff. He was at that point, I believe, uh, I don't want to get his title wrong, but I think his title was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for international security affairs. I may have the title oh. wrong. Let me ask you ago. about him. At that time, did you know that there had been some question at one time or another about a security clearance for General Secord? No, I did not, sir. All right. Nor, I, and I think that issue arose later, and I, I'm, quite honestly, I didn't even know about that aspect of it because my contact with him was essentially broken after our work together, and mine was very peripheral compared to his, uh, on the uh, Saudi Arabian uh, Air Defense Enhancement uh, Program. All right. At any rate, you made contact with him, and it was him that brought in Mr. Albert Hakim. Yes, sir. Uh, again, I went to General Secord. As I recall, it might have been in the spring or summer of 84. Uh, basically seeking someone who can give the kind of advice and logistics support and the kinds of uh, activity support to the resistance that we perceived they needed because the CIA was, as I indicated, being uh, pulled away and, of course, with the most stringent of the Bolin strictures in October, basically cut off very abruptly at that point. And by then, General Secord had been engaged. And, of course, by then, money had already started to flow to the Nicaraguan resistance from outside sources. And those outside sources uh, through Calero, primarily? The, uh, the one I am aware of, and there may well have been others that right. I'm not aware of, but uh, the one I was aware of started in the spring or summer of 84. Mr. McFarland came to me, uh, asked me for my recommendations. I went to Director Casey and asked for his advice. Well, let me ask you at that point, did you always go to Director Casey uh, for directions in this type of well, uh, activity? I, you know, I, I th in answering that question earlier, I, I take a little bit of contention with, it, with the word direction. And I don't want either of my previous uh, superiors to think that I was working for Director Casey. I know who I worked for. You worked for McFarland and Poindexter. And prior to that, Judge Clark, and befo but before that, Dr. Allen. But I, but I did have uh, a lot of advice from Director Casey. All right. 
and uh, which I value, Congressman. Yes, Jenkins. I understand. Then Secord and Hakeem uh, commenced the arms purchases for the Contras. Yes, sir. You well, we, I think we got off a little bit, but after I gave, after I conferred with Director Casey, I then, uh, with his advice, recommended to Mr. Calero the establishment of an offshore bank account, and he then gave me that account number. I gave that account number to Mr. McFarland, and shortly thereafter, money started to flow. And I can't say for certain, even today, that there's a direct connection, but I certainly assume there was. And it flowed to that account. And then General Secord began providing the kind of support, which is now so evident. At that point in time, I had never even heard of Mr. Hakeem, and it wasn't until some time later that I met him. But at any rate, uh, Mr. Hakeem and General Secord were in this, as I understand it, as a profit-making business. Well, again, I, my understanding was, and I, the word profit may have come up, but it, the, the, the two criteria that Director Casey and I talked about three criteria, actually, and that I communicated with General Secord on was that these had to be standalone, offshore, commercial ventures, that they ought to be ultimately revenue uh, producers, that they would generate their own revenue and be self-sustaining, and that those engaged in these commercial ventures were certainly deserving of fair, just, reasonable compensation. Which you never did define I and did was not, never sir. defined to you. No, sir. And uh, at that time, Mr. McFarlane and later Mr. Poindexter understood that. Is that correct? I certainly believe they did, sir. All right. And as a matter of fact, uh, at some point in the initial stages, uh, Mr. Hakeem and General Secord decided to eliminate the Canadian arms uh, dealer and uh, give that portion of the profits to Mr. Klein's. Is Again, that correct? I, I, I'll have to say apparently so because I'm not, those were the kinds of details within the operation in which I did not involve myself. I didn't see any no, necessity I, for that. It was, uh, I, I'm not even sure that I was aware of that at the time. You left that entirely to General Secord. Exactly. And did he have a superior in the government? No, and he was not a part of. By then, he had retired from the United States Air Force and was a businessman outside the government. Right. In fact, when I approached him, he did not jump at this chance. I think that should be noted for the record, right. that he thought about it for some time. I, at one point, importuned uh, Director Casey to see if he could encourage it along, and it was not for several days or even weeks that he came back and agreed that he would do it. And then later, uh, you decided, with the approval of your superiors, uh, to bring General Secord and uh, Mr. Hakeem into the Iranian That was in no deal. November of uh, 1985. Right. I, want to, uh, I don't want to repeat everything, but I want to know, had you ever met Hakeem up until that November? I, I may have, but I do not recall meeting him at this point. I don't recall having met him until February of 1986. First time you had met him? I believe that's correct, sir. And at that time that you met him in February, what was the occasion? We were in desperate need of a translator as I have indicated earlier, uh, there was no translator available within the CIA at that point uh, that could provide those kinds of services. I did not speak Farsi. The Iranians with whom we were talking obviously spoke Farsi but not English. So and I, did not I did not want to have to rely on the translations being provided by Mr. Gorbanifar. And when I mentioned this to uh, General Secord, my recollection is that he said, well, 
I will get Albert Hakim, who perhaps by then I knew the name, but in any event, Mr. Hakim came and served as translator for those meetings. All right. And that was the meeting that you have testified to where the seven points were first discussed with the, with the first channel? No, sir. Or is I, that my recollection later? is that the seven points issue well, came up with the second channel right. uh, somewhat later. Now, at the time that uh, you asked for Mr. Hakim at the suggestion of General Secord and met with the first channel, uh, was in fact uh, Mr. Hakim the only person on our side, you were handling the trip, that spoke Farsi? Yes, he was. Well, General Secord speaks some Farsi. He served in Iran and he does speak some. I so hope I'm not insulting him, but I don't think he speaks it as well as Mr. Hakim. So the only representatives that we had when we made contact with Channel One that spoke Farsi were two people outside the government. That is correct. All right. Uh, and uh, you later learned, I'm sure, that Mr. Hakim uh, was obviously into the enterprise, as he has testified to this committee, entirely for the money. I did, I'm, I'm not too sure how he testified uh, well, to the committee, Congressman Jenkins, but uh, and I'm not here to impugn anyone else or to defend anyone else. My understanding throughout was that the people who were engaged on our side in both this activity and the support for the Nicaraguan resistance were in it for reasons that served our national security interests. I had made it clear to General Secord, as I indicated a few moments ago, that fair, just, reasonable compensation was deserved, that these were commercial entities. And I don't recall at any point Mr. Hakim saying to me or to others in my presence that I am in this only for the money. I do recall Mr. Hakim saying that he cared deeply about the fact that his native country where he was born and raised and lived, was essentially in a state of uh, siege or, or no relations at best with his adopted country. And like many people who are victims of totalitarian regimes in Eastern Europe or Cuba or Nicaragua, who have fled to this country and become Americans, my sense was he had the same kind of aspirations that many Eastern Europeans have, sure. Poles, Lithuanians. Well, I understand that he uh, had some mental, heartfelt interests since he was born in Iran, and he's uh, an American citizen now, I believe, uh, has yes, been sir. living in Europe. Nevertheless, uh, he has Actually, testified... Actually, I don't believe he does live in Europe. I think he lives in California. All right. Uh, he always maintained a home, I think, according to his testimony in Europe. Uh, he has testified to this committee already, and he stated, uh, testified to the committee, uh, that he not only informed uh, you, and of course General Secord already knew, but that he also informed the Iranians in Channel 2 now, where he, he uh, did most of the negotiating, that his interest was financial interest. Well, he, he certainly did indicate that he had a financial interest. Yes. And, and I believe I even surrendered to the committee notes of mine that indicate a discussion that he and I had at some point about his view of where he hoped a new relationship with Iran would lead. And as a businessman, and as I understood it at the time, a very successful businessman, he saw, not just for himself, but for American enterprise as well, enormous opportunities in a restoration of a, of a positive Certainly. relationship. He, he testified with to that also. And he also testified that uh, his interest, one of his primary interests, uh, was to open up the channel, channel two, get stable relations back, because with $15 billion in trade. I remember the number. He mentioned that to me. And I think, I think that it's he hoped to get 2% of it. I don't remember the 2%. I remember no. the $15 billion. 
And uh, he was very much interested from a financial standpoint in making this succeed is the question.